I never thought that I would be talking about why they shouldn't support communism. I thought we would have learned that lesson over 30 years ago. How would you define socialism? common ownership of the means of production. So, you know, historically, socialism, that's what it is. USSR, Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. It's the final transitionary step to communism. Do you think America's eventually going to get to the point of losing citizens? Possibly. I mean, Ronald Reagan said, If we lose freedom here, there's no place to escape to. This is the last stand on Earth. Well, it's true. If we lose freedom here, where else are we going to go to? In fact, Ronald Reagan came from an era where, where people could disagree. But you get this kind of mob media platform, this culture of intimidation, of cancel, and it starts going after people. And I find that one of the more disturbing things about America today. And also, too, people just aren't well read. They're not taking the time to research things. But this is the kind of culture that we're in. 30 plus years after the collapse of communism, we should not be having the debate as to whether or not communism is bad. And the fact that we are shows uh, we're really in trouble as a country. We have a special guest with us here today. He is Paul Kanger, who is the best-selling author, professor, historian, and commentator. And we're going to focus on two topics today. One topic is going to be Karl Marx, which he wrote a book that just came out, I think, August of 2020, a few months ago, 1,000-plus reviews on Amazon. It's been a big hit. It's called The Devil and Karl Marx, Communism's Long March of Death deception and infiltration. And we're going to focus on a second individual in today's interview, and that is Reagan, Ronald Reagan, which he, Paul, wrote a book called The Crusader, Ronald Reagan and the Fall of Communism in 20, 2006, which is turning into a movie starring Dennis Quaid. It's going to have John Voight and a lot of other folks in a great lineup of, uh, but it's based on the book that my guest today wrote. With that being said, Paul, thank you so much for being a guest on Value Tamer. Well, thank you, Patrick. I'm very impressed with you, your background, and it's um, it's it's a joy to be with you. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah, I've, you know, I've watched your videos and the way you explain things. I I, I told you this off, uh, you know, before the interview getting started. I said you're extremely necessary today, and I hope the audience gets a lot out of our interview. So, you know, uh, Paul, if we can start, uh, what makes somebody like you? want to a historian can study a lot of different things it can be war some are world war one some two some it's a different war some it's military some it's history having to do with different characters but why the focus on Karl Marx and Ronald Reagan well that's a good question Patrick so I, I it goes it goes back to I'd say my kind of formative years in college I was in college in the late 1980s I went to the University of Pittsburgh where I, where I was pre-med and I, <laughs> I worked for the organ transplant team at the University of Pittsburgh. So I know you probably didn't expect me to say this, right? This to be part of my answer. But, but I was, uh, I, the, Dr. Thomas Starzl was the organ transplantation pioneer. They did 80 to 90% of the world's organ transplants at the University of Pittsburgh in the 1980s. So, so I was there, right? This is, this is, this is my life, this is my career. This is where I'm going. I'm going to go to medical school. Uh, I, I, I worked 30 hours a week the, while I was in college for three years. And then when I graduated, I worked full time, did research on immunology, anti-rejection drugs. But it was 1988, 1989. And it, it was the collapse of communism, the end of the Cold War. 
the end of the Reagan presidency, Mikhail Gorbachev, Margaret Thatcher, Pope John Paul II, Lech Walesa in Poland, Vaclav Havel in Czechoslovakia, the Solidarity Movement, the Iran-Contras, the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, all this stuff, right? So I was really intrigued by it. And well, I could say a lot. I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent, but I, I'll tell you, I was non-political. I was non-ideological. And I knew all these great debates were going on around me. I started following them. I started paying attention. I wrote a letter to the editor to the student newspaper, which was called the Pitt News, which was a daily newspaper published four days a week, Monday through Thursday. The editor said, hey, I, I really like this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run this as an article, if you don't mind. And he ran it as an article. It was called, by the way, it was about the homeless. And as a, as a science major, a non-political person, non-ideological person, I heard these people on campus who I was told were, were liberals, right? And they were blaming the homeless problem on Ronald Reagan. <laughs> and I thought, how is this Reagan? What year was this? What year was this when you wrote this? Just <laughs> so curious. This would have been 1988, 1989. Got it. So the liberals are blaming Ronald Reagan. Homeless, <laughs> continue. I'm sorry. Right, right. So, so I did a little research on it, like a science major would do, right? So I tried to find out. I read some different publications. I talked to some homeless people. I called the local homeless shelter. And I asked the lady at the local homeless shelter, I said, hey, um, so I'm doing some research on this as a student. I asked her a bunch of questions. And at the end, at the end of this, Patrick, at the, end, at the end of the interview, I said, okay, so why is this Ronald Reagan's fault? And she said, young man, Ronald Reagan's fault. These people are mentally ill. <laughs> I don't know what they're teaching you at that university, right? Well, I know they're not all mentally ill, but this was her response, right? And, and, and so I wrote this up in the student newspaper for the student, they published it as a column and I got called a racist, probably for the first time in my life, right? I got called a fascist. My, so the next article that I wrote, by the way, this is symptomatic of, I think, me and you both, right? When they attacked me, I didn't crawl under a rock. I said, I said, damn it, that's not right, right? Um, I'm going to respond to this. So I wrote another article on, on arming the Contras in Nicaragua, which I thought seemed like a common sense thing to do. I didn't know why people on campus were protesting this. Why wouldn't you oppose communism? I wrote that piece and I got called a Nazi of all things, a Nazi, right? A fascist. I, rem I remember my, my father picking me up from, from class on a Friday afternoon, give me a ride home. He said, hey, how's that newspaper column thing going that you're doing? I said, oh, pretty, pretty good, dad. I said, you know, this is amazing. I got called a Nazi for the last column I wrote. He said, a what? I said, a Nazi, a Nazi. I still remember him looking at me in the car, a Nazi. Yeah, I said, yeah, yeah. He said, what are you writing about, Hitler? I said, no, I'm not writing about Hitler. Dad, I said, there's these people on campus, they're called liberals. And when you disagree with them, they savage you. They call you the worst names in the book. They're calling me all these different names. And he said, well, you know, hang in there. I said, oh, I'm going to hang in there. So I continued to write, and then pretty soon I ended up becoming the campus conservative, the editorial page editor. They called me all these different names. And here's the big picture to kind of long answer to your question. It was the end of the Cold War. It was the collapse of communism. It was 1989. So this is what I wrote about. And I became really, really intrigued with the end of the Cold War, communism, all these different ideologies. And long process, I'll sum this up in 30 seconds. This was long and agonizing, but I decided not to go to medical school 
To instead go to graduate school, I went to American University in Washington, the School of International Service, and took up studying international affairs, the Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, the Middle East. I teach Middle East politics to this day at Grove City College in Grove City, Pennsylvania. And, and I, that became sort of my calling, I guess. That's what I started writing books on. And I started writing books specifically on the collapse of communism, the Reagan presidency, end of the Cold War. And Patrick, I thought I'd be writing from communism from a historical perspective, right? This is bad, this is evil. Here's how many people this ideology killed, so forth. I never thought that in the year 2021, I would be talking about um, trying to teach people why this is bad, why they shouldn't support communism. I thought we would have learned that lesson over 30 years ago. Let me let me ask you this. By the way, uh, uh, powerful right there on your testimony, how you came about. What a timing, 88, 89, Reagan, communism clashed. And it makes sense to why wanting to study those two figures. But uh, question for you, 88, 89 versus today. 88, 89, we didn't see what happened on campus. There was no videos. If somebody was protesting against you, we didn't see any of that that was taking place around the country. We didn't see that hardcore liberal. The media would have to go there to record it versus today. How big of a difference is it between 88, 89 versus 2020, 2021? Well, I started seeing a lot of this stuff back then. And that was when the the very first um, article by Dinesh D'Souza on the cover of Atlantic Monthly, right? Which is the Atlantic Magazine. And that was his book, Illiberal Education. That was sort of the start of the political correctness movement. And it's funny that we're having this conversation. I'm a senior editor for the American Spectator. I'm writing the history of the American Spectator, which I read in the late 1980s. And I was going back through that period, 89, 90, and and, and, and I went back and grabbed from an old box in my basement the articles that I wrote for my student newspaper. And the last one that I wrote was titled something like um, favorite columnist, which is like a sarcastic thing, right? Says goodbye to some unthoughtful words, not with some unthoughtful words, to some unthoughtful words. And I went through words like fascist, Nazi, racist, homophobe, hater. You could get called all these words, even if you weren't these things, right? Just for simply opposing liberals and leftists on on this stuff. So this sort of demonization of opponents, that was already going on. I I think the difference now, what's so dangerous and sad about the current period is because of social media and media platforms today, you can really get a quite literal, right, Twitter mob against somebody. And, you know, people can come after you en masse by the thousands and millions. And there just wasn't that sort of, you know, alacrity, speed of, of protest, of organizing that, that, you, that you see today. But, um, but, that, but that stuff was out there back, back yeah. then. And I remember, too, one more. June 1989, um, two things in June 1989. The, um, the people of Poland held free and fair elections, all right, which had been promised at Yalta in 1945, 44 years later, all right? That same week, everybody forgets this was the same week, Tiananmen Square happened in China. And I remember the Chinese students on my campus, University of Pittsburgh, who came up to me as the conservative that they knew of on the student newspaper. And they said, we're looking to demonstrate. We're looking to hold a protest. We want some people to march with us. uh, How do we find the protesters? And I kind of laughed, Patrick, because I thought, you know, 
these guys aren't going to protest this, right? I mean, they're, they're protesting arming the Contras. You know, they're protesting apartheid in South Africa, right? But they're not on the streets protesting what's going on in Tiananmen Square. And these poor kids, they protested, they marched alone. And they marched alone on Pitt campus. They had paper bags over their heads to conceal their identities. They wore bandanas over their mouths so the, so the regime back home wouldn't know who they were. But that was one of those lessons too, that the American left, man, on a dime, they would protest what was happening in Chile under Pinochet, right? Years earlier under Cuba under Batista in the 50s, right? Uh, what was going on in South Africa? But you get you know a communist crackdown on pro-democracy demonstrators in Beijing, you know, if you pressed them and said, this is bad, right? They might say, yeah, it's bad, but they weren't, they weren't marching in the streets over it. You know, so, so a lot of that stuff that we're seeing today was around. It's been around for years. Let me, let me ask you. So I got three questions for you. So let me write down the third one so I can kind of uh, 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 get to it here. Okay, so number one question is the following. When I was in the army, they told me when you go in, as much as I used to curse a lot because I, you know, pre-25, I cursed, I was a cursing machine. So when you go in the army, you know how they say they curse like, a, you know, you curse like a sailor or, you know, all that stuff. Everybody dropped the F-bomb. And when I tell you F-bomb, it was like every other word, like <laughs> adjective, adverb, noun. It doesn't matter what it was, right? I grew up with guys like that. Yeah, okay, I so I, I was one of those guys. Yeah, yeah. I got to tell you, Paul, after about a couple weeks, I never heard the F-word anymore. Mm. Like, I couldn't even hear it. So I get out of the Army. I'm working at Valley Total Fitness and Chatsworth. My friend at the time, Fernando, says, Pat, do you know how foul of a language you got? I said, what do you mean? He says, every other word out of your mouth is, and you're talking to customers like this, like, let me see what I can F and get you. And I love it. Hey, what's up, mother? And I'm like, oh. so go on. You just did it again. I'm like, oh, she says, you may want to kind of, if you want to kind of become a manager here one day, you got to clean up your language. Yeah. So, so you know what? I wasn't aware of it. So I kind of worked on it. Here's my point. Do you think the weight behind the word Nazi, racist, bigot has lost its weight because everybody's thrown around nowadays where it no longer has the weight it once had? Or do you well, think it, it still carries weight? Yeah, it, 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 should, it should carry far less weight. And, and I, I mean, especially today where, you know, you can get called that for anything, for any reason. And this is something that I, I've tried to tell liberal friends of mine for years, right? You call somebody a fascist, right? Well, watch out because when the real McCoy comes along someday, no one's going to believe you when you call out somebody who's really a fascist. You call everyone a racist, no one's going to believe you when someone comes along who's genuinely a racist. And by the way, I say this to conservative friends a lot. Um, it, just because someone's a liberal, you disagree with them. Don't call them a commie, right? Um, you know, you know, communism is a very unique, specific thing. You know, you might call him a radical lefty, right? Call him a lefty crazy, call him a loony left, something like that. But, but you know, don't fling that kind of language around. Both sides need to be more careful and thoughtful about their rhetoric and their names. But the left in particular, I mean, you know, I've had people, people say to me, I've heard this, I've heard this more in the past six months or so, especially after the Trump administration, right? Um, that, that people just simply no longer take that charge of, of racist seriously because the left has absolutely so abused it and annihilated it that it doesn't carry the weight that, that, uh, that it should.
Yeah, it's funny you say that. I had uh, David Horowitz on. You know David Horowitz, oh, yeah. who is, yeah. is a pretty well-known. We had him at Grove City College, yeah, a couple of years ago. Amazing, yep. Yeah, I had him on, and he kept saying, everybody, the Democrats are communists. I said, you can't say that. He says, I'm telling you they're coming out. I don't believe every one of them is because we're losing them. He says, everybody keeps saying. So anyways, we had a nice, interesting conversation together on, because I agree with you on the fact that we're also labeling everybody. Not everybody's in the same box. Second question for you on this side here. So for me, as a person that's a business owner, I'm an entrepreneur, I have to always get to the bottom of the issue because you can fix issues on the surface, it keeps reappearing. But you gotta get to the bottom of the root to figure out exactly why this issue keeps surfacing. So you said this has been going on for a while. Okay, so I'm 42, okay? I came to the States November 28, 1990, which means I don't know pre-November 29. Matter of fact, I didn't even follow politics for quite some time. So go even past that, right? If this has been going on forever, has this been going on forever as in since biblical times, pre-biblical times, meaning are we always going to go through this 20 years from now, 40 years from now, 80 years from now, 300 years from now, 800 years from now, 1,000 years from now, because it's a cyclical cycle of one person makes the money, the other one says it's unfair, he feels envious, let's take the money and give it to everybody else. So it's a constant pendulum that will go through and it's never ending, or is it any way different today than it was before 40 years from now, 80 years from now, 100 years from now, 500 years from now, 500 years ago? Well, I, I do think it's worse now than ever, and it's getting worse. But like, for example, yesterday in class, I teach a course on Marxism. We were talking about the Hollywood 10. And every single member of the Hollywood 10 was, was, a, was a member of Communist Party USA. We had their five-digit Communist Party USA numbers. In fact, they were presented before the members of uh, Hollywood 10 when they were speaking to Congress October and November 1947, House Committee on American Activities. John Howard Lawson, who was one of the worst of them, when he was called in to testify after telling all of his liberal friends in Hollywood, Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall, um, you know, Danny Kaye, Gene Kelly, some uh, Judy Garland, some of these wonderful actors and actresses, who, by the way, were liberals, right? They were not communists, right? They were progressives. But he was telling them, I'm not a communist. These right-wing fanatics in Washington, I, yeah, I'm not that. I'm not, yeah, I'm like you. So he got up there and he testified before Congress and they said, Mr. Lawson, here on this billboard, here on this um, poster board, here's your Communist Party USA number. Here's all the checks you wrote out to Communist Party USA. Here's your dues. Here's your application. And, and John Howard Lawson, Patrick, you know what he did? He kind of stirred in his seat and he yelled, Nazis, <laughs> right? This is like this is like the Reichstag fire in Berlin. He just started calling them names, right? He just started calling. <laughs> and, and these guys, all that they had done was expose them as being a communist. So what did he do? He called them all these names probably would have called him a homophobe if that name had existed back then, right? So, so you see this among the, the, the kind of extreme left for quite some time. I'll go back a little further. Karl Marx, um, I spend a lot of time on this in, in The Devil and Karl Marx. Um, Marx and these Marxists like to say that business people are, are capitalists who are obsessed with money, right? Um, no, guys like Marx and Marxists and communists they're the ones who are obsessed with money. That's all that these guys think about. You, you read some of Marx's anti-Semitic statements, they are chilling, right? He says things like, what is the worldly God of the Jew? Money. What does the Jew worship? Haggling. And I read that and I think to myself, 
no, Carl, you're the one that worships money, right? You're the one that's obsessed with money. You're so obsessed with money that you can't even think enough about your own money. You think about everybody else's money, right? You, 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 want, you want a central government to come in and forcibly take it and redistribute it. So it's funny, oftentimes when they're yelling at you, hater, screaming at them, and you're thinking, I'm not hating at all. I've got a smile on my face while you're talking to me. They're projecting onto you what they're really feeling. And they do that a lot with, um, with, with money and attacking people with property and attacking capitalists. A lot of this is a sort of self-projection. It's almost psychological by some of these individuals. Paul, what, what was communism called pre-communism? That's a good question. And the, I, had a, I had a professor in graduate school who used to like to say that the Jacobins were the first communists, right? And so the Jacobins, of course, were there in revolutionary France beheaded 40,000 people by guillotine in one year between 1793 and 1794. And, and of all things, today in the American left, one of the more popular avant-garde ideological magazines is called the Jacobin. And they have a little meme with a, with a, with a guillotine. It's nothing to laugh about, right? Nothing to laugh about. But Marx and Engels in 1848 published the Communist Manifesto. And that the Communist Manifesto was the official programmatic statement or manifesto of the Communist League in that day, which was made up of about 48 people, all Germans, all men, with the exception of Marx's wife. I think she was the only woman in the group. So at that point in time, and people have tried to pin down when, who first used the word communism, the great Richard Pipes, the, the Harvard historian, said that he believed it was coined in Paris in the 1840s. Um, I don't know exactly for sure, but Marx and Engels met in Paris in the 1840s, and uh, and they published the Communist Manifesto in 1848. Got it. So so now before we talk about Karl, before we talk about Reagan, let's focus on Karl here. So who was Karl growing up? Family, parents, upbringing, you know, school. How was he in school? What stories do we need to know about him on, that influenced him to become? who he ended up becoming with writing the book with Engels, Communist Manifesto. Yeah, he was he was born in Trier, Germany, May 5th, 1818. So Trier is spelled like Trier, T-R-I-E-R. And it was, it was one of the most religious cities in all of Germany, um, very heavily Roman Catholic. In fact, the ancient cathedral in Trier was built in the 320s, the 320s, not the 1320s, the 320s, around the year 330. And it was built, financed by Helena, St. Helena, the mother of Constantine, of all things, who made a pilgrimage to the Holy Land and came back with um, all sorts of artifacts. Uh, she believes that she found the actual cross that Christ was crucified on, the actual crown of thorns, which to this day um, allegedly, allegedly is the cross of thorns that's in Notre Dame in Paris. And she even believes that she found the holy robe, which was the, the robe that Christ wore on the way to the crucifixion that the Roman soldiers cast lots for at the, at the, at the, feet, at the feet of Christ at the crucifix. That holy robe is in the cathedral in Trier. So Marx grows up in a very, very religious city. His father, um, the family was Jewish, uh, many rabbis in the family background, pretty faithful family. Uh, father converted to Lutheranism, probably at least in part under the social pressures of the day, 
uh, it, uh, but the father always believed in God, Patrick. And he even said he would tell Carl, he'd say, you know, believing in God is a good thing for a young man, Carl, right? It gives you some accountability, something beyond yourself, a sense of ethics, right? Kind of a sense of absolute, something that you could follow. Carl was baptized around the age of five, 1823, 1824, became a fairly passionate Christian through his teen years, and then fled the faith in college, where um, probably the biggest influence in college was a very anti-Semitic theology professor that he had named Bruno Bauer, who was such a bad theology professor that, that the, other, the other faculty members ran him out of the college. He was, he was teaching heresy. <laughs> and so, so Bruno Bauer and his favorite student, Karl Marx, together in 1841, started what they called an Archives of Atheism, a, a journal of atheism, which quickly folded because they couldn't get any support for it. But at that point, he was um, he pretty much put religion behind him in the 1840s and became a pretty uh, militant, aggressive atheist after that. Was there a following out between him and his dad and his parents or no? Oh, yeah. What was the oh, following yeah, out? I, what happened? I, I quote a chilling letter in, in uh, The Devil and Karl Marx. I think it was March 2nd, 1837, March 1837. And it's a letter between Marx and his father. And uh, the father is very harsh toward him in that letter. And I, I, I really think ex excessively harsh. But, but the, uh, Marx loved his father, admired his father. And after that, the father died not long after that. And Marx from there on looked to his parents, well, his mom, primarily for money. Marx was horrible about making money an absolute deadbeat dad who would not provide for his wife, would not provide for his children. Both his mother and his wife expressed the wish that Carl would start earning some capital instead of just writing about capital. He, he sent his wife out begging for money to his wife's in-laws. Uh, Carl went to his own in-laws. The, the only way that, that, that Marx was able to do what he did was because was of Friedrich Engels. Because Engels inherited a pile of money from his capitalist, wealthy, industrialist father. And, and Engels became Marx's sugar daddy, his subsidizer. And frankly, Engels was pretty sick of it too, the way that Karl all the time was, was pumping him for money constantly. Mar Marx refused to earn, earn a living. The, the family, his wife, Jenny, um, Jenny's family was so upset at Karl's refusal to make any money that the family lent their nursemaid, a girl named uh, Helene DeMuth, who had grown up with Jenny. The family loaned her out to Carl and Jenny, and they, call, they called her Lenchen. Carl refused to pay her a penny, and, and in fact, Carl got her pregnant behind Jenny's back, and then Lenchen, Helene, had a baby. Carl refused to admit that the child was his, and of course, refused to pay the child a penny a penny of child support. So you know the, the type of world that Marx was looking to create would have been a world where, where the government took care of somebody like Carl. Well, he sat around on his butt with carbuncles and boils and refusing to bathe and never earned a dollar. I mean, that's the type of world that, that he was looking to create for himself. What, what was his logic? Like, what was his motive and logic behind that way of thinking? In his own personal life? 
Yes. And the way he was like, I'm not, I'm refusing to help out my wife, you know, anybody. What was his logic to say, I'm not moving. People need to take care of me, not me taking care of them. Was it because he felt he was above people or because he felt people owed him something because of being mistreated of what, what was it? I don't think it was the latter. He did feel that people owed him something. He was, he was very bitter and he was very angry and, and superior to others. Oh yeah. I mean, Marx was, it was hard for Marx ever to keep a friend. He eventually ran afoul of everybody. Um, I quote some of the vitriol between him and, and Mikhail Bakunin, who wrote um, God, uh, uh, God, the State and Revolution. No, I'm messing that up. But, but who was a, another militant atheist and said, oh, here's Carl flinging his bile at me now, like he does at everybody. And uh, Ingalls was one of the only people who hung with him. And in fact, when when Ingalls' mistress died, Ingalls Ingalls did not believe in marriage, so he refused to marry any of the women that he lived with. But he loved this woman. And Carl wrote him a note where, um, and even the Marx biographers, the hagiographers, the people who like Marx say, oh, this was really offensive. This was a low blow by Marx. Marx in the first one or two, three lines acknowledges the death of Ingalls' um, girlfriend and then gets on to the next 20, 30 lines with a more important question of asking Ingalls for more money. And Ingalls was so offended by this. He wrote back this diatribe letter. Even my capitalist friends show more sympathy than you. And, and he almost cut Marx off permanently at that point. But he came to realize that Marx was, this is how Marx was. You know, he he what, always what was, thought about himself. What was, what was Engels' reasoning for wanting to financially support Marx? What was, what's in it for him? Yeah, the cause, the cause of communism. And when Engels first met Marx, he, he, he referred to him in a poem as the monster of 10,000 devils. The monster of 10,000 devils. And he talks about this poem, this black man from Trier, right? He's using black here in the, in the sense of darkened, right? Like, like darkened figure, this foreboding presence. who had this strange allure to. And Engel's faith story is much more complicated. He had grown up uh, a Christian, never really wanted to leave the faith and always had this kind of, so he felt Carl like pulling him over to the dark side almost. But they formed this partnership the Communist Manifesto. I quote in the book, Marx, um, Engels writing to Marx, Carl, give a little more thought to the communist confession of faith. I think we should drop the catechetical form and just call it the manifesto. So they even talked about this document that they were writing in religious-like language. So this became something deeper for them. This was their calling right? This, this was their vocation. This was, this was like a, almost a religious enterprise to them. And they hung in there and became lifetime partners and wrote pretty much um, everything together. Uh, what, what, the good stuff that's written about Marx, who wrote it and what good things did they say about Marx? Well, all the recent Marx biographers over the past 20 years are all pretty much hagiographers, right? They just, they idolize the guy um, these are like biographies for saints. They, they, and, it, and you really got to go through and kind of pull out the stuff from all of these to, to put together the puzzle. It's, the, it's amazing the stuff that they ignore. They ignore all of, all of Marx's poetry about the devil, which is what I focus on quite a bit. But earlier Marxist um, 
biographers and historians talked about it, in, in, including um, Robert, uh, gee, why can't I think of his name? That's terrible. But his biography of Marx, 1968, he published uh, Robert Payne, um, Simon and Schuster, New York University Press, NYU Press. But, but, the, but the Marxist biographers today, they tend to go very easy on them because they like Marx. Marx is their guy. And they're writing kind of uh, cream. How do they paint them? How, what picture are they painting with them? Like even let's say they're trying to write, sell them as a this figure who wanted to take care of the little guy. How do they sell him? Like what stories do they have to say that one time he saw a bird and it was on the ground right. hurt and they, he picked him up and brought him home and fed him for three months and built a ring and he wing and he flew off. Like is there and what stories are they telling about him? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, the, these are in many ways love letters. In fact, one of the Marx biographers, uh, recent ones, her name is Mary Gabriel. And she wrote, I think it's called uh, Love and Capital, which is a biography of Karl Marx and his wife. And, and I got that and I thought, how can this be a Valentine, right? I mean, how in any way, to be fair to Gabriel, she does talk about some of the sordid stuff, the bad stuff, the cheating. Um, you know, Mark's not fulfilling his role as a husband, letting down Jenny. But at the same time, you know, she really drills down and accentuates and focuses on the nicer things about them. So she doesn't ignore everything. Some other Marx biographers, though, they're, they're pretty bad. I'll give you an example. I don't want to call this guy out by name. But, but I focus on a moment between Marx and a guy named Karl Heinzen, who was a fellow socialist. And, and Marx like corners Heinzen in his apartment. And Heinzen said, he was staring at me with the eyes of a wet goblin, right? He almost described in sort of demonic terms. We had just drank a couple bottles of wine. Marx wouldn't let me out of the apartment. And, and Marx is like taunting me. And, and, and this guy Heinzen finally said, if you don't get out of my way, I'm gonna throw you down. And he had to slam Marx down and you know, break out of the apartment got outside, went down the steps, got outside, and Marx is like yelling at him from the apartment window. This biographer who tells this story, his first name is Francis, he tells it, he thinks it's charming. He thinks the story is charming. And I read that and I thought, what the, what the hell? How could, how could anybody, you know, I'm literally thinking hell. I mean, the guy's describing Marx in like demonic terms. Eyes like a Mar Did Marx like men? Did Marx like men or no? Was he attracted to men? I don't, I've never seen that. Okay, I got it. I, just curious. Yeah, I know, I don't, I don't know. But okay. that how anybody, how two people, this is how two people could look at something and one could say, oh man, this is chilling. This is all the other guy's like, oh, how charming. But I, I, I think it's the other guy's fault. I know I'm biased too, but I look at that and I don't think this isn't charming. This isn't funny. This is so bad. Yeah, so let me let me let me go a little bit deeper in this. So now, if you can just give us an idea about what was the basic fundamental foundation of Marxism or communism. Well, Marx and Engels said the entire communist theory or program may be summed up in a single sentence: abolition of private property. So there you go. I mean, that's so. If if, if you had Marx and Engels in the room and said, "Hey," Um, in one sentence, describe communism. They'd say, well, that's easy. We did in the Communist Manifesto, right? The entire communist theory may be summed up in the single sentence, abolition of private property. Um, beyond that, they had other basic little definitions. Marx said, communism begins where atheism begins. 
And here, if I may read just a couple of bullet points, this is Marx and the Manifesto, um, Marx and Engels and the Manifesto. Communism represents the most radical rupture in traditional relations, by the way, which it sure does. They acknowledge that communism, quote, seeks to abolish the present state of things, right? Seeks to abolish the present state of things, of all things, right? I mean, it, it, this is key because we're going from abolition of private property to abolishing the present state of things. So people who think, and, and, and young people say this in surveys, well, communism's a pretty good idea. I mean, they talk about love and sharing and sharing the wealth. No, read the book. They talk about abolishing the present state of things. These guys aren't tinkerers. They're not talking about like increasing tax rates, right? They're not talking about adding a couple of programs to the, to the welfare state. Abolish the present state of things. What does that mean to you? What does that mean to you? <laughs> well, in, in, the, in the case of when you read the, to, the totality of what they're writing, it's, it is truly a totalitarian philosophy. And totalitarian in the strictest sense of the word, a fundamental transformation of human nature. I mean, they are really looking to, to redefine human nature. The final paragraph of the Communist Manifesto, everybody remembers, workers of the world unite. Um, you have nothing to lose but your chains. They write this in the final paragraph. The communists openly declare that their ends can be attained only by, now listen to this, only by the forcible overthrow of all existing social conditions, okay? Our ends can be attained only by the forcible overthrow of all existing social conditions. I mean, you and I, right? We, we, we know this as, as scholars and intellectuals. You, you never say all about anything, right? You might say um, communists call for, for the forcible overthrow of those things in society which are unjust, right? They want the forcible overthrow of all existing social conditions. And you know, Marx, um, here's one more phrase in the manifesto, close of the manifesto, last page of the manifesto. Communists everywhere support every revolutionary movement against the existing social and political order of things. Now you hear that and you think to yourself, this explains a lot, right? You might be watching a particular rally on TV, a riot or whatever, and you think, why is that guy there with a hammer and sickle? What does that have to do with communism? Wait, they're protesting the unjust death of George Floyd? What's the communist doing there? What does that have to do with communism? Well, if whatever is going on, right, is some sort of movement against the existing social and political order of things, these guys will be there right? Uh, I mean, they'll team up. If, if, if it's redefining um, marriage or gender or whatever else, something that might, you might think doesn't have anything to do with capitalism or anything that these guys could have thought of in the 1840s. If it's about redefining and annihilating the existing and so social political order of things, they'll be there. Uh, Paul, do you think he wrote this book with Engels for them to ex experience the power themselves or was it because I read somewhere where when this book was taken by, you know, Lenin, Stalin, all those guys, it was almost like they, they wanted to take ownership for what this could happen. But Karl couldn't fulfill his own prophecy. What was his long term aspiration of writing this book? 
So the book came out in 1848, so he had been 30 years old. He died in 1883. Um, Ingalls died a little bit after that. So, you know, he lives for 35 years after the publication of the book. And he talks in some of his glowing moments about how communism will allow for him to fish in the morning, um, uh, you know, farm in the afternoon, raise cattle in the evening, criticize after dinner. Right, he talks about it in this very utopian language as to whether he would have lived to see it if he believed he lived to see it. I don't know, but but you know, he talked about communism as this dialectical march of history, this inevitable march. This is part of the point of communism. This is inevitable. They believe this is the inevitable logic and march of history. In fact, it, uh, Engels called it. They called it scientific socialism. And, and Engels said in his eulogy for Marx at Marx's funeral, he said, this is the Darwin of the social sciences. He has done for the social sciences what Darwin did for evolutionary biology. This is a natural evolution of history. So history would, would evolve from feudalism, slavery, from feudalism and slavery to capitalism, to socialism, to communism, right? So socialism would be the final transitionary step to communism. Lenin and the Bolsheviks, they get into power. Lenin at one point in January 1917 was depressed. He said, I don't think I'll live to see the revolution in my lifetime. And then America declared war, uh, World War I, Woodrow Wilson, April 2nd, got a war declaration from Congress, April 6, 1917. The Tsar abdicated and the Germans put Lenin on a boxcar and let him pass through, dropped him in the middle of St. Peter's Square and by October of 1917, the Bolsheviks had their revolution. So, um, and Marx and Lenin and Stalin and these guys, they believed, Lenin wrote a number of important articles and statements on this. They believed that the revolution needed a vanguard, a, a regime, a cadre, a group of individuals, a kind of an anointed group to raise the consciousness of the masses and the workers, right? You couldn't just wait for this to, transcend for this to evolve. No, we got to abolish this now. We got to abolish that now. We got to get to work. We got to take power. Got it. So if you're, if you're looking at it right now and you were to say the following countries are full on communism, what would you say is full on communism based on their definitions? Castro's Cuba, the, the Castro brothers, right? Raul now, Fidel died a couple of years ago. The Kim's North Korea. Those are really textbook cases of totalitarian communism. And you, know, and you hear, get this all the time. Somebody watching this will probably complain, um, a Marxist out there, they say this all the time, Patrick. Oh, well, that's not really communism, right? That's an aberration of communism, right? That, you know, Marx and Engels would have never supported the gulags. Well, you, go, go to Marx and Engels 10 point, what they call for the forcible overthrow of all existing conditions, forcible overthrow. Go through their 10 point plan. They say right there at the 10 point plan, of course, in the beginning, this cannot be affected except by means of despotic inroads. I mean, they realize any, any you're a business person, any um, business person, non-business person, anybody should realize that if you make a call for the abolition of private property, you're gonna have to use guns and gulags. I mean, people aren't going to roll over for that. And right then and there, you ought to, you ought to say to yourself, if, if this is an ideology that's going to require locking people up and killing them and putting them on trains and 
herding them off to concentration camps, maybe we shouldn't go there, right? <laughs> maybe this is a bad idea, right? Uh, but but that's uh, th this is an ideology that necessitates prison camps. I think so, it's unavoidable. So when you hear Chinese Communistic Party, what, what what's communistic about China? Yeah, that's a great question. And modern China is such a weird case, right? So you have you have a country that from 1949 to 76 under Mao and the Cultural Revolution, the Great Leap Forward, you know, that was full blown. Maoism, communism, as Mao saw it, right? The signification of Marxism, as he saw it. And then Deng Xiaoping came in in 1978-79, created what he called socialism with Chinese characteristics, where they reversed the collectivization. They started doing mass privatizations. They started freeing up the economy. And basically, they did what was no longer economically communism. So you have the weird situation in China to this day where you have a country that's politically communist, a one-party communist state, but not economically communist. So what I does call that mean? It, yeah. What does that mean, one political party, communist, government is communism? What does it mean, government is communism? Well, and this is where, this is where the Soviet Union was, right? And, and the big thing that Mikhail Gorbachev did in 1990, they abolished Article 10, or is it Article 6? of the Soviet constitution, which had a communist party monopoly on political power. And you know, every, every communist state ever, you can only have one political party. By the way, and you can't have free elections <laughs> because people won't vote for communists, right? <laughs> when I mentioned the, the, the elections in Poland in June, 1989 earlier, Patrick, they put 100 seats up for contested elections. Communists lost 100 out of 100. Okay, they didn't win a single seat, right? That's why Castro's Cuba won't hold elections. This is why they don't hold elections because people will vote communists out. People in the West are like, communism's a pretty good idea. They don't live under it, right? Then why don't the people ever vote for it? Why don't the leaders allow the people to vote for it? So in China, you have a single party, communist party controlled state that doesn't allow political parties. The leader of the party is the chairman, the president, whatever becomes the leader of the country. And they're smart enough to realize that if they want an economy that works, you can't do true economic communism. You got to allow enough free market reforms that you won't go broke and starve to death. So it's weird what they're doing with communism in China. It's a very different thing. It's, and it's totally unlike North Korea or Cuba. The way I see it is Chinese Communistic Party, let's just say the government is communism is no freedom of speech. You can't have an opinion. You better That's do right. as they say and everything else. You can make money. Yeah. But the moment, uh, Jack Ma, you think you're bigger than us and you give a speech on October 24th of last year calling out the regulators and the government employees, let me tell you, here's your $2.8 billion fine. We have new regulation about monopoly and we are shutting you down and you're not going public and Ant Group's going to be overhaul and all this other stuff because you crossed the line. You started thinking you're bigger than China. And you're not. So yeah. zip it. Don't say a single word against us or else. Okay, fair enough. Right. So now, who would you say today in America, if you were to say the most influential person in America that follows and would like to aspire one day for America to be what Karl Marx talks about in his book, Communist, Manif uh, Communist uh, Manifesto, who would aspire to see America become that? If you were to say big name, not small name, yeah, big yeah. names. Well, that's a good question. I mean, for that sort of hardcore, 
you'd have to go to like Communist Party USA website is cpusa.org. You'd have to go to like the Trotskyist Socialist Workers Party. Um, the, the editors at the of People's World, which is peoplesworld.org. That's the successor to the Daily Worker. There's a guy named Bob Avakian who runs the Revolutionary Communist Party. Um, Revcom, they're known as. Bob Avakian is- Avakian. Is he Armenian? Yeah, I, that's a good question. It probably is Armenian. Yeah, A-V-A-K-I-A-N. Um, if you look it up, Bob Avakian. They call him Chairman Bob. And he's got at his website, his website, Revcom, Revolutionary Communist Party USA, is all about him. So do you see it? Yeah. Yeah, that's him. He is Armenian, by the way. He's an American, uh, Armenian American lawyer, civil rights activist, and later judge on Alameda County, uh, California Superior Court. Interesting. Yeah, so he he's he's a leader and he is... Uh, when you saw last summer or last year, Patrick, that um, Communist Party endorses Joe Biden for president, I remember I saw, I got that email immediately because of who I am, right, in my email box. And I thought, wow, that's weird. Communist Party USA, I know that they're for Biden and for the Democrat every four years, but they you don't usually endorse them because that hurts the, the endorsement hurts. So I clicked it. It wasn't Communist Party USA. It was, it was Chairman Bob. It was Bob Avakian. He's the one that endorsed Biden. For that. Is, is, he, is he a guy that debates and gets on different platforms and interviews or no? I don't think he does much. From what I can tell, he's mostly solo and, and posts. For a while, he was in exile and possibly in Paris. And I often wondered if it was a self-imposed exile. Well, we'll definitely <laughs> reach out to him because we've had Slavoj Žižek on and we've had uh, uh, Professor Richard Wolf on and a few other guys on. So I'm always curious to know to speak to them. So, okay. So I think, is it fair to say that the, the, the topic of communism is not creating a lot of momentum in U.S. at all? It's not like it's going to one day be a threat to U.S. again, like it was back in the days under Reagan. Well, here's the threat. And here, I think, is the longer answer to your question. The people today who are sympathetic to communism are calling themselves democratic socialists. And, and so if there's a kind of leader for that today, first of all, there's Bernie Sanders, okay? And Bernie Sanders was a formal presidential elector to the Socialist Workers Party in 1980 and 1984. So 1980, when most normal Americans are deciding whether to vote, vote between Carter or Reagan, right? Bernie Sanders was supporting the Trotskyist Socialist Workers Party. We've never found proof that Bernie um, was an actual member of the Socialist Workers Party. But you look in his background, I mean, he's long been a supporter of it and probably knew better than to actually formally join it. Daniel Greenfield of frontpagemagazine.com, David Horowitz's Freedom Center, Ron Radosh, look up their writings on Bernie's time in a Stalinist kibbutz in Israel in the early 1960s. So Bernie was way to the far left. Bernie was never a Democrat until 2016 when he sought the Democratic Party's nomination. He was an independent. Um, James Carville, right, said, Bernie's not a Democrat. Why is he running as a Democrat? He's not even a Democrat. He's not. He's not a Democrat. But he came in second for the Democratic Party presidential nomination in 2016 and 2020. Bernie's a lifetime socialist. By, by the way, one more thing. The Trotskyist Socialist Workers Party, they published the publication The Militant. And the militant, you can look up online, Lee Harvey Oswald, the assassin of JFK, 
holding the rifle in one hand that he shot JFK with and a copy of the militant newspaper in the other hand. That's been around for a long time. The other leaders of the sort of modern socialism, the democratic socialism, as they call it, it's the democratic socialists of America. That's the group. That's it. Patrick, that is it. Communist Party USA says that they've had a membership surge where they're now at about 5,000 members. Right? That sucks, <laughs> right? The Democratic Socialists of America are, are in a true membership surge and are now up to about 90,000 altogether. And their poster girl is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And the other one, in fact, if they have poster girls, it's the squad. Um, Ilhan Omar, who I think is the most radical member of the House. And the third one is Rashida Tlaib, who, who said of Donald Trump, we need to impeach the mother you know, blank. And the fourth one is Eliana Presley, although I don't think Presley is, um, is an actual democratic socialist, but she's part of the squad. So that's really, that's where the momentum is today. And so if you... If you if you look up Democratic Socialists online, look up look up Democratic Socialists of America, um, annual convention, Communist International, and they're they're singing the 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 International at the start of their at the start of their convention and calling each other comrades, right? So they uh, they'll they'll say, oh, we're not communists, we're we're not even socialists, we're democratic socialists. But but when you hear the rhetoric and see what they say and you see what they read, like Richard Pipe said, you know, there's no meaningful distinction between socialism and communism. Um, oftentimes there's indeed not. So if we look at communism and they define Engels and uh, and uh, Marx say the abolition of uh, uh, ab abolition of property, right? And then you have the at the end of the book, forcible overthrows of all existing social condition. Okay. Right. It's fine. So we have those two definitions. Then what? how would you define socialism? Yeah. And uh, Lenin wrote in The State and Revolution, which is his kind of um, opus. And he wrote that in 1917. Couldn't finish writing it because, got, uh, because the revolution overtook them. But he wrote in there, he said, as Marx said, in, 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 in communism, socialism is just the final transitionary step before communism. So, you know, the, it, 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 it's one phase that leads to a higher phase. Marion Smith, who was the executive director of Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, says, well, uh, just as religious believers, Christians and Jews aspire to heaven, the socialist aspires to communism, right? Communism is the sort of new Jerusalem. You know, that's, that's, the, that's the utopia, that's, that's the heaven on earth. So in true Marxist-Leninist theory, Socialism is the final transitionary step to communism. Now that said, you'll run into all sorts of socialists today who say, well, but that's not the kind of socialist that I am, right? Um, I don't support communism. I wouldn't go that far. I support single payer healthcare. I support maybe government taking over the energy sector. I support this. And that. Well, all right, fine. But if you type in at Google or Merriam-Webster socialism, what will pop up is socialism, common ownership of the means of production. So you know, historically, socialism, that's what it is. USSR, Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. It's the final transitionary step to communism. It, it, makes, you, it makes you wonder. So, so I'm a math guy. I'm a numbers guy. 
because it makes sense to me and it's absolute, right? So if I look at communism, communism, if I go on one side, 100% to me is communism, okay? So is there a way to come up with a number that tells us where socialism is when it comes down to taxes? Has that study been done? Because Arthur Laffer said yes, around 33 and a half, 34 and a half percent. And, you know, uh, you've seen a lot of different studies, but is there a way to quantify what socialism is since we know how to quantify communism? That's a great question. I love that. And in my comparative politics course at Grove City College every fall, we use the Heritage Foundation's Index of Economic Freedom. They rank countries from number one to about number 170, most economically free to least economically free. And the top two have been Hong Kong and Singapore pretty much ever since they started doing this study in the 1990s. And then you have New Zealand, maybe Ireland, maybe the UK, maybe the United States were around the top 10. And then China, I think, is usually around like 100, 120. Um, Spain, Italy, France, you know, who knows, 30s, 70s, they're all over the place. But at the very end, the very end is always North Korea and Cuba. Cuba. Yeah. So in a way, I, that, that guide I find very, very useful as, uh, as kind of um, a ranking system. And a country there that would be around 150, Venezuela is down at the bottom now too. Zimbabwe is down at the bottom. So I'd say when you're in that range of like the bottom 10%, bottom 20%, 150 to 170, you're kind of in, you know, collectivism, socialism, communism, you know, that you're, you're in that territory. Got it. But th there's never been a number that they've put to it. Meaning if, tax if you pay more than 60% taxes, it's socialism. If you pay more than 30% taxes, it's socialism. What that, that's what I'm looking for. Yeah, it's a good and question. Yeah. And to do it through tax rates, to truly have abolition of private property, by the way, the top three in Marx and Engels 10 point plan, abolition of property and land, graduated or progressive income tax. Oh, and my favorite, abolition of all right of inheritance, all right? So abolition of all right of inheritance would technically mean, right, for you and I who are practical guys and are trying to figure out what these guys are saying, that would have to be like 100% um, inheritance tax, right? Death tax. So if you have a 100% tax on inheritance, it's the only way you're gonna abolish all right of inheritance, that would be communism. Um, I, if you have a 50% tax rate on inheritance, I'd like to call that socialist. I think it's pretty damned outrageous. 70% um, would be outrageous. Tax rates. Uh, in the United States, we introduced the federal income tax in 1913, permanent federal income tax. It was a few percentage points. By 1921, under Woodrow Wilson, it was 73%. FDR took it up to 94% on income over $100,000. And FDR, if you read Bert Folsom's book, FDR Goes to War, FDR in the 1940s wanted a 99.5% tax rate on incomes over $100,000. Now, I would call that pretty close to communism. He might not be quoting Marx when he's doing it, but I'd have to say that that would be pretty close, a 99.5% tax rate on income over $100,000. That's like almost complete confiscation and redistribution of wealth at that point. But to pick a hard number, Marx and Engels never gave one. And this is infuriating for practical-minded business people. 
they also they would say, well, you know, at this point you've left capitalism and then socialism and then capital. I want to know at which point in the process we're there, right? I want to know who's the vanguard, who's the group of leaders that say, oh, okay, all right, okay. We are now comrades from point B to point C, right? I can now say that we've officially entered communist society. None of this is ever clear, and it has to be decided by dictators. That's what it comes down to. Very interesting, by the way, on the 99.5. I mean, I, I would... I would love to know what's the right book to read, where it's going to be unbiased and it's going to tell me what was his motive in taking it to 99.5. Like what? Yeah, what is it's it's, um, it's Bert Folsom. Uh, FDR goes to war. He wrote it with his wife Anita. He's a Hillsdale professor, retired Hillsdale. And what's the book about? Um, it's called FDR Goes to War. I got it. So it's about the 1940s, and um, yeah, 99.5 percent rate. By the way, people thinking, well, he must have just wanted it for wartime. No, 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 no. FDR, FDR was had jacked the rate up to 91. The reason Ronald Reagan left the Democratic Party was um, over FDR's tax rates. And that's that's what drove him out of the Democratic Party. That probably more than anything else. That's right, because in Hollywood they were getting crushed with the taxes, yeah. but it was at the top. So it's so, okay. So now let's talk about let's talk about Reagan. Um who was Reagan and how did Reagan come to his political conclusions of eventually obviously becoming the president of the United States? Well, so he was, he had been um, raised an FDR Democrat. He called himself a hemophiliac liberal, a bleeding heart liberal. He was a new dealer from the Midwest. And I mean, that's my family too. My family's from Western Pennsylvania, coal mines, steel mills, Pittsburgh, and you know, in those days, they you know, it was kind of the party of God, guns, and labor. In those days, right? Um, it's interesting that it's what Donald Trump really tapped into here in Western Pennsylvania: fracking industry, West Virginia, coal mining. But uh, so Ronald Reagan came out of that group. His mother was very religious, very very religious. And when Reagan went out to Hollywood in the 1930s, started making movies, a lot of movies, 1930s and 1940s. Among other things, he became weary of, of kind of this hyper New Deal collectivism, redistributionism, high tax rate, tax rates, what Reagan called creeping socialism, where you start this new program, that new program, this new program, and pretty soon, how do we pay for all of this? Well, how do you pay for it? <laughs> well, you increase taxes, right? On who? Well, on the rich, all right? Well, how do you get any higher than 91%? Well, we go to 94, right? Uh, how about 99.5, right? You know, Margaret Thatcher said the problem with socialism is you eventually run out of other people's money at some point. So that got to Reagan. And what really got to Reagan was he saw the communist infiltration of Hollywood. Reagan saw that with the Screen Actors Guild. He was president of the Screen Actors Guild. And he also saw Reagan became a popular after dinner speaker in Hollywood in the 1940s, where he would go around giving this speech, exoriating Nazism, fascism. And one day after he gave this speech to a men's group at his church, the pastor, the Reverend Cleveland Kleihauer, came up to Reagan and said, Hey, Ron, that's a great speech. You know, Nazism, fascism, evil, 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 evil. But you know, Hitler's dead. There's no movement in the United States at all for Nazism. You know, the war was over three years ago. 
you know, Ron, out there right now, there's another threat out there. It's called communism. And it's, it's pretty brutal too. And I think your speech would be a lot more powerful if maybe you just added in a little criticism about communism. <laughs> and Reagan Patrick said, well, that's a pretty good idea. I think I'll start doing that. So Reagan gives his typical stump speech and he's giving it to one of these progressive groups in Washington, right? And sitting there, you know, the John Howard Lawson, Dalton Trumbo, Hollywood 10 types, way to go, Ron, way to go, you know, get, get those Nazis, get those fascists. And then Reagan gets to the end of the speech. He writes about this in his memoirs. And he said, at the end of the speech, he, he said, he said, you know, there's another ism out there and it's called communism, another totalitarianism. And I'll tell you, if that ever becomes a threat to the United States, like Nazism was, I will condemn that just as harshly. And Patrick Reagan said, you could hear a pin drop, a pin drop, right? And, and he said, he got called names, um, um, uh, witch hunter, red baiter, fascist scum. All of a sudden he's like persona non grata. He's like, what am I doing? And he realized, Reagan said, the reds weren't under the bed. You know, they were, they were in the bed. And a lot of these progressive groups that he thought were good hearted liberals like him were actually pro-communists. So if this awakened Reagan to the communist threat in Hollywood and the United States and all of that, that FDR, everything else, began pushing him out of the Democratic Party and toward eventually the Republican Party and conservatism. Um, he, uh, I'm, I'm currently finishing up Jim Baker's book. Uh, uh, I don't know if you've read it or not. The, the story, The Man Who Ran Washington. I don't know if you've yeah, read it. Yeah, I haven't read it yet. I should. Yeah, he's, uh, he's got a, he gives a different angle on Reagan. And uh, also, I'm not sure if you've read Killing Reagan. I'm sure you read Killing Reagan yeah. by Bill O'Reilly. I have. You know, he kind of takes it. He pissed off George Will, and George yeah. Will was one of the guys that inspired me. Uh, March of 2009, when I heard him speak at Miramar Hotel, when I was invited to an event by Larry Greenfield from the Claremont Institute with Larry Arn, and I heard him speak, and uh, 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 Pat Boone was there, and all these other guys. But uh, today, where we are today, you, you're a historian. You've read a lot. Obviously, you're biased on one side, strong conservative. You even said it yourself earlier. We said, listen, even me as a person who's biased, when you look at the part saying where he is not letting his friend go down, I mean, that's just that. What do you mean romantic? Or what do you mean by, you know, the words that the guy used? Right. Even I'm biased. That doesn't sound romantic to me. Uh, I, I don't know if that's the word you use. You may use a different word, but, you know, I, I get what you were saying. What is your biggest concern today? We're in America today. You know, we just got done with a four term, you know, four years of Donald Trump, which, you know, if you're watching CNN, MSNBC, he's the worst president of all time. If you're watching Fox, he's the GOAT. If you're reading Wall Street Journal, he's great for the economy, but he's rattling too many cages. You know, if you, depending on what you read, you have a different interpretation of who Donald Trump is. And we go through coronavirus, Momentum creates, voting changes the way we're going to vote, mm. Biden wins, we wait six weeks to find out, Georgia wins, both seats, and then Biden inauguration, Trump doesn't show up first time ever, and now we have America today. What is your biggest concern of where we are today? Well, I'd say, indeed, this rise in support for socialism, people's lack of understanding of it, um, and I and two, the entire cancel culture and just how nasty and vicious people are to one another. In fact, Ronald Reagan came from an era where, where people could disagree. 
and 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 you know the people in the 1980s on the left side who disagreed with Ronald Reagan, you know, at, at least at least they liked him as a person. They didn't feel that that you that you had to ruin someone's life. This idea today, I mean, somebody will watch this today and not like what I say and and want to write a letter to the president of my college demanding I be fired. <laughs> you know, it's it, it, it people so personalize everything. Uh, there's a real lack of charity, of kindness, of decency, of people really getting along like ladies and gentlemen and having you know, genuine disagreement. And also two people just aren't thoughtful. They're not well read. They're not taking the time to research things. I had um, I, a group of faculty at a college where I was supposed to, supposed to speak in California last semester um, asked that the invitation to, be, to me be withdrawn and for their evidence against what I had done, they, they, they quoted some obscure online publication I hadn't even heard of, and from which they took like a two-line summary of a book that I wrote. And it was all that they had, Patrick. And I thought, these are fellow academics? I, I mean, read the book. I, I, I mean, how lazy is that? I, I, I mean, about, not just nasty, but lazy. But this is the kind of culture that, that we're in. And it makes me not very optimistic. I mean, as the Reagan historian, Reagan talked about the shining city on a hill. I mean, I, I feel that we're not that shining city anymore. And it's gonna be, um, to turn this around, I don't, I don't know what it's gonna take, but 30 years, 30 plus years after the collapse of communism, we should not be having the debate as to whether or not communism was bad. And the fact that we are shows that uh, we're really in trouble as a country. You think it'll get to a point where people are gonna leave America and go to different places to live just like everybody else came from other countries to wanna to live in America. You think America's eventually gonna to get to a point of losing citizens? Possibly, I mean, Ronald Reagan said, if we lose freedom here, there's no place to escape to. This is the last stand on earth. And he was talking at that point about talking to a Cuban refugee. That was Reagan's 1964 time for choosing speech. So I still wonder, well, it's true. If we lose freedom here, where, where else are we, we going to go to? But I could see some people, especially professional people, feeling so harassed by the woke mobs and everybody else in America, where they say, you know, I've had enough of this. I'll, I'll go live in Europe or something. But in a way, you can't escape social media, right? You can't escape the, the, the power of the internet and Twitter and everything else. So it takes a special kind of person, I think, in toughness to withstand this, ignore it, and simply say, maybe like what Reagan said, right? Well, there they go again, right? And just and, and kind of shrug it off and say, well, this is what they do. This is how they attack. And they're calling me a racist now. Well, they've done it to everybody. They did it to Reagan. By the way, they're really doing that to Reagan now, right? Uh, so it's just, it's kind of what they do. They're vicious about it. And um, I guess all we could do is maybe try to teach people to be more respectful of one another, but good luck. How do you deal with that with teaching the youth? I mean, you're seeing what's going on with uh, China giving $400 billion to Iran, 25-year contract, okay, that they're going to get oil in return, but at the same time, influence in education, influence in infrastructure, influence in, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then you're hearing about New York given $15,600 to undocumented immigrants who lost their work during the pandemic. And, you know, they're going to spend the state budget of $2.1 billion to helping out, 
and they're raising taxes. Well, for the top line revenue, uh, officially, New York becomes the most expensive state to live in. It's no longer California. California becomes the second worst, used to be the worst right. on taxes. How are some of these people making these kinds of policies and making progress on them and people are buying into them? And the job creators are sitting on the sidelines saying, well, you know what, I'm going to take it a little bit more. Are you sensing the exodus actually taking place from some states? And some of these states are really going to pay a big price, just like maybe they did in 1970, when half of the Fortune 500 companies out of New York left and completely left to a different state. Do you see yeah. some states getting crushed? Yeah, I do. And, and this is a whole other fiscal conversation about the bankrupting of America. I mean, there's only so much longer that this kind of spending and this kind of debt can go on. We've been saying that for a long time, but it's got to reach a tipping point at some point. But 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 also, though, too, to have those people then leave New York and California and go to states like Texas and Colorado and Georgia, and then they come down and they bring their, their crazy voting preferences with them, uh, and then and then turn you know southern states and Republican states into into northeastern states, uh, and 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 in a place like like Georgia where corporations like Coca Cola and even Major League Baseball, an organization like that, st starts politicizing everything. I mean, they have no idea if the laws in Georgia are more restrictive than my home state of Pennsylvania. They're probably not, right? The, the, Coke doesn't know that. Major League Baseball doesn't know that. But you get, again, this kind of mob media platform, media mentality, this culture of intimidation, of cancel, and it starts going after people and people get scared and they buckle. And, and I find that, to go back to what I said, I find that one of the more disturbing things about America today in the 21st century. I'm on, we're at the last part of the interview. Paul, I'm going to give you names. It's called speed run. Tell me one word that comes to mind. Okay. okay. AOC. Democratic Socialist, I use two words. Okay, Sanders. Socialist. Pelosi. Oh boy, uh, that's not easy. <laughs> I'm trying not to be insulting. I was gonna pick a, a word that's insulting there. Um, I, I, yeah, yeah, I better, I shouldn't say what I, I just talked about charity, right? What, what, what I would say would not be, um, positive about her, in, in my view, mental acuity on, on, on certain policy issues. How about Biden? I think he's the Trojan horse. Yeah. Kamala. For the, yeah, Kamala, yeah, President Harris. Yeah. Obama. Obama, uh, increasingly difficult to pin down. I'm starting to wonder, Patrick, if, if, if Obama, almost like a Bill Maher type, is kind of moving a little bit more to the center as he gets disgusted watching the cancel culture and some of this other stuff go around him. But that's, that's not a one word answer, is it? Yeah, yeah but, but it's very interesting you're saying that because you wrote about his mentor. Yeah, Frank uh, Marshall Davis. Yeah, so it's, it's interesting. Well, so well, and, it, and his presidency, I think, was a really bad turning point that, that I, I, I could show you by data that when they ask, they ask young Americans every year, do you support socialism or capitalism, all right? It finally flipped to socialism in 2010, right? A lot of this cultural revolutionary stuff happened under Obama. Uh, Obama was really a break, the Obama presidency was a breakthrough period for the left that I don't think we'll, we'll ever turn back from. Even if Obama has some regrets, if he ever does about some of what happened. 
Got it. So Ted Cruz, right? Ted Cruz. Great. Yeah, I think he's terrific. He's one of my favorite senators. My favorite senators are Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, Rand Paul. JFK. Uh, Anti-communist Democrat. Bill Maher. His party is no longer with us. I agree. Bill Maher. I, I, I appreciate his independence. I can't watch his show because of the vulgarity and the other stuff. But I appreciate somebody who's honest and, and is willing to, he's like Piers Morgan, right? W willing to say what, what um, willing to go against the politically correct on his side. Anderson Cooper. I actually think he's pretty fair. I, I um, yeah, yeah. Tucker. Brilliant and, and needs to continue to be courageous. Be not afraid. John Stewart. Uh, yeah, he's a little bit like a Bill Marta and, and John Stewart. I like he's a nice guy. He doesn't have a mean edge to him. Trump. That would take another entire show <laughs> to adequately assess him. But uh, turn, policy wise turned out to be a much more conservative president. And, and, and many of the policies that I thought he would never embrace in 2016, he did by 2020. Pence. Um, really nice guy. I don't think he'll ever be president, though. DeSantis. Um, I think he could be president, and he's a really good governor. Well, I got to tell you, I've really enjoyed this. Thank you so much for being a guest on Valuetainment. And uh, we're going to put the links to two of your books, which we talked about today, The Devil and Karl Marx. We're going to put the link below, as well as The Crusade of Ronald Reagan and the Fall of Communism. And uh, we'll put the links for folks to be able to find you as well, whether it's your website or your social media platform. Final thoughts here before we wrap up. Is there any last words you got for the audience? Well, I don't use social media. My Twitter account, I've never actually touched. So I got to warn you on that. But yeah, my, my, final, uh, my final advice would be educate, educate, educate. You might have to self-educate yourself and all this stuff, especially if you go to our lousy universities. And have courage, have charity, be not afraid, and try to be a cheerful warrior and this culture that needs uh, cheerful warriors. Ronald sure. Reagan was a cheerful warrior. I like that, cheerful warrior. So are you, Patrick. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Thank you for being a guest on Valuetainment. Thank you very much. God bless, take care. God bless you as well. You have no idea how much I enjoy watching interviews or doing interviews on topics of economy. Like it's so fascinating to me. And some of you either love this stuff or some of you didn't even make it all the way to the end. But if you did, I wanna know what you took away from today's interview. And if you enjoyed today's interview, there's two other interviews I want to recommend. Watch either one of them that you want to watch. One of them was with Ray Dalio. At the time when I interviewed him, I think he was worth 18 billion. And we had a very, very deep conversation about economy, methods of thinking. China was a big part of it. You may enjoy this one. And if you've not watched my sit down with Larry Arn, Larry Arn has a lot of similar philosophies to my guest today. Paul, I think you would really enjoy the conversation with Larry Arn as well. Having said that, click on each, uh, either one of them that you want to watch. And uh, aside from that, have a wonderful day. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.